coming to you from Atlanta, Georgia. This is Voice Over Work, an audiobook sampler. Where do you listen? This is your host, Russell, and today is Tuesday, August 23rd, 2022. Nick Trenton, in his book, The Art of Self-Therapy, contends, Therapy is a tough task for most. It can be expensive, scary, or socially unacceptable. But this is a process you can start for yourself. It's time to start the rest of your life. A major aim of this book is to get you to know yourself and understand parts of yourself like your shadow side, your inner child, your attachment style, and your coping mechanisms. The goal is to help you analyze your thoughts, rewire your beliefs, and build your life one small step at a time with behavioral experiments. Thanks for joining us today, and this is the chapter-by-chapter preview of Nick Trenton's The Art of Self-Therapy. Part 1. Getting to Know Your Deeper Self Therapy is a wonderful thing. A trained mental health professional can help you explore psychological blind spots, set goals, and work with you through tricky thought patterns so you can gently change them. But what if you don't want therapy or can't access it? Self-therapy is a way to recreate some of the benefits of conventional therapy, but on your own terms. This book is all about giving you the tools you need to gain better self-awareness, build emotional maturity, and learn to change your behavior so that you can start creating the kind of life you want for yourself. The tools we'll explore in the chapters that follow are the very same ones used by cognitive behavioral therapists, counselors, and psychologists the world over. By adapting them for your own use, you can start cultivating more contentment with who you are, challenge limiting thought patterns, and zoom out to gain a broader view of the narratives on which your life is structured From there, you can consciously choose what you want for your life rather than passively being at the mercy of these forces. In the pages that follow, we'll start at the very beginning, your deepest self. In part one, we'll look at helpful techniques and mindset shifts that will help you master self-exploration and gain deeper awareness into how you actually tick. Then in part two, we'll take a look into the past and investigate how your family and early experiences shaped who you are today. After all, if you want to rewrite the story of your life, you need to understand the story as it is so far and how it got that way. In part three, we shift our attention to the cognitive manifestations of our core beliefs and inner emotional realities, our thoughts. Using evidence-based cognitive behavioral techniques, we'll look at our thought processes and take charge of them, asking whether they're genuinely helping us achieve the kind of life we want. Finally, once all this groundwork has been laid, we can dive into the practical work of Part 4, where we explore ways to start taking action and changing our behavior in the world day after day. Self-therapy isn't learned overnight, and it can be challenging at times, but rest assured that no matter where you are now or where you want to be, these techniques will bring improvements in your life. Whether you're looking for more direction and purpose, want to improve your relationships, or simply need to get a handle on who you are and what you really want in life, there's something in this book for you. Let's jump in. Chapter 1. What it means to master self-exploration. What you'll learn in this chapter? Why and how to improve your self-awareness as well as a six-part process for learning more about what makes you tick. Here's a good question to begin with. Who are you? According to psychologist Dr. Tom Stevens, mastering self-exploration can provide us with a sophisticated, nuanced answer to this question. But we can't answer that question until we have something crucial, self-awareness. Too many people go through life on autopilot or in a kind of distracted haze, They're not really sure what they feel, what they want, or who they are. 
they're unclear about their values, have fuzzy boundaries, or have never really stopped to consider why they behave as they do. If you've ever asked yourself, why do I do that? Or what do I really want? Or why am I unhappy? Then chances are you can benefit from more self-exploration. When you've explored yourself in enough depth, you can identify who you are as a person, both strengths and weaknesses, take responsibility for what you need, and then make informed decisions about the choices you want to make in your life. If you embark on any plan for personal development without self-awareness, though, you're merely going through the motions. Perhaps you end up doing what you think you should be doing, or substitute other people's desires and values for your own. Not only does self-awareness make you happier, more resilient, and more accepting of who you are, it also allows you to live authentically and create a life that's right for you. So, what exactly is self-exploration? According to Ryan Howes, Ph.D., psychologist, writer, and professor in Pasadena, California, it involves taking a look at your own thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and motivations, and asking why. It's looking for the roots of who we are. The idea is that if you can understand why you do something, you empower yourself to do something different. If you don't truly understand what's going on in your heart and mind, you only have a dim hope of fulfilling your potential, overcoming obstacles, or connecting fully with others in your relationships. Beginner Strategies Make Self-Exploration a Habit Self-awareness is like exercise. The more you practice, the better you become. The best way to gain more self-awareness is to build it into your life as a regular, consistent habit. This can be as simple as asking yourself, whenever you remember, what do I notice about myself right now? Simply pause, become aware, and be with yourself for a moment. Try just 10 minutes to start. What about trying right now as you read this book? Notice if you get distracted and your mind wanders. Notice what you're feeling and where that experience sits in your body. Notice the thoughts in your mind. Notice what you're doing. Notice what came just before. Even notice things like, I'm bored. Am I doing it right? Unplug and check in with yourself. Importantly, you don't have to do anything about what you notice. You don't have to judge, interpret, cling to, avoid, or analyze what you notice. Just notice. For example, you might be having a shower and suddenly notice that you're in a really bad mood. Why? You pause and decide to become aware for a moment. You sit somewhere quietly and notice that you're annoyed. You notice your thoughts and how they're rushing ahead to an imagined... Chapter 2. Take a walk on the dark side with shadow work. What you'll learn in this chapter? What the shadow is and how and why to embrace it with acceptance and compassion. When most people experience uncomfortable emotions, they want to do one thing and one thing only, get away from them. In fact, they may turn to therapy with precisely this attitude, make it go away. However, this is the opposite of the mindset you need. As we saw above, what's required is a willingness to tolerate, accept, and be with emotions. All our emotions, no matter how uncomfortable they are, and without judgment. If you start to make awareness and self-exploration a bigger part of your life, sooner or later, you're going to encounter parts of yourself that you really, really don't like and your tendency will be to run as far away from them as possible. However, this is where the technique of shadow work comes into play. Carl Jung was the psychiatrist, author, and theorist who first introduced the idea of the shadow. In simple terms, the shadow is our psychological blind spot. It contains everything that we can't see, i.e., that's outside our awareness. Every person has a shadow. But the idea is that if we can acknowledge it, accept it, and integrate it back into our awareness as something that rightly belongs to us, we enjoy greater mental health, authenticity, creativity, energy, and maturity. When we're young, 
We have certain experiences that teach us that some parts of ourselves are acceptable and others aren't. In order to survive in the world and get our needs met, we unconsciously decide to disown those bad parts of ourselves and disidentify with them. We push them out of awareness. For example, our parents may tell us that our anger is bad and punish us when we yell or express frustration. So, we put anger into the shadow. It hasn't gone anywhere, but we don't see it anymore. This dark side of our conscious awareness doesn't contain just bad things, by the way. We can also disconnect from and disown positive feelings, attributes, or thoughts. We may put into the shadow things like excitement, hope, silliness, and so on, because of early experiences that taught us these things were bad. So, what's the problem? Isn't it a good thing to section off the worst parts of ourselves? The trouble is that the shadow is never completely hidden. It still shows itself. However, it may do so in sneaky ways. Our shadow may express itself in strange behaviors we don't understand, in dreams, in slips of the tongue, or in behavior others can see but we don't ourselves recognize. Perhaps our anger comes out in passive aggressiveness. We may say, I'm the least angry person in the world. Yet somehow others can feel the anger radiating off us. It's because it's still there in the shadow. As long as we have a shadow, we'll remain at least partly unconscious of our deeper motivations and may be trapped in behaviors that are not good for us without really understanding why. On top of this, there's a sneaky phenomenon called projection, in which we end up incorrectly ascribing to others the feelings and thoughts we ourselves have, but have disowned and relegated to the shadow. The classic example is the person who's being dishonest, but has pushed that fact out of awareness. The shadow seeps out. Chapter 3. Gestalt Techniques. Be present, be responsible, be whole. What you'll learn in this chapter? How to open yourself more fully to the present by putting the past to rest. As you embark on more self-exploration and become more aware of yourself in the present, you may notice something interesting, that so much of your experience is actually all about the past. Gestalt therapy is a kind of psychotherapy first introduced by Fritz and Laura Pearls in the 1940s and addresses this issue of letting go of the past. You may start to notice that what keeps you from living in the present or planning for the future is the fact that you have unresolved conflicts and patterns that are living on from the past. Gestalt therapy, then, is all about healing that past so you can focus on the present moment and your responsibilities in that moment. If you can do that, the theory goes, you can make better decisions and greatly improve your resilience, self-knowledge, and well-being. In a 2018 Good Therapy article on Gestalt Principles, licensed counselor Jody Clark puts it this way, Gestalt therapy is a humanistic, holistic, person-centered form of psychotherapy that's focused on an individual's present life and challenges rather than delving into past experiences. The idea is not to endlessly rehash the past, but to resolve and release it so we're free to take responsibility for our lives right now. What do we need to begin Gestalt therapy techniques? As you might have guessed, it's awareness. First, let's look at this word Gestalt which is a German term that roughly translates to whole. Its meaning suggests that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. A gestalt is then the meaningful form or shape that we give to all our collected experiences. With our perception, we make sense of the world with our narrative and our identity. This is a gestalt. However, every person is connected to and influenced by their environment and others. So it follows then that if we want to understand ourselves and fulfill our potential, we need to also understand our context. To change, we have to become aware of what is and also accept it. In this way, we relieve suffering and anxiety and free ourselves to seek growth and development instead. 
Gestalt therapists believe the reason we are unhappy in life is because there's a gap between our present and our future. In other words, our mind may travel faster and further into the future than the concrete circumstances of our lives can keep up with. Thus, we create worry, anticipation, and a whole world of expectations and interpretations that cause us trouble. We also cause ourselves trouble when we use our minds to travel back to the past. But here, the pearls have some advice. All we can ever experience is the present. The perception we have of the past or the future is not objective because it is actually a reflection of how we're living right now. So far, so good. But how can we apply any of these insights into our own lives? Below, we'll look at five popular Gestalt therapy strategies that you can try for yourself. Strategy 1. Pending Issues A pending issue is an event in the past that continues to have an influence on the present. These issues are like knots, blocks, or... Chapter 4. Understanding Internal Family Systems What you'll learn in this chapter? That there are many parts of you, but well-being occurs when all those parts find a way to live together. In reading the above technique, you may have noticed that there were seemingly two versions of yourself, and these two were in dialogue. One part of you was critical, stuck in the past and acting on autopilot. The other part was wiser, kinder, and able to step in with a more objective rebuttal. This theme is expanded on in Internal Family Systems, or IFS. The idea is that everyone is made of several smaller sub-personalities, i.e., the mind is like a mini-family. This means we can talk about and deal with the different inner parts of ourselves in much the same way as we would with a literal family. The roles of each of these parts are not set in stone. We can evolve and change. IFS therapy, then, is about bringing all your separate parts together to work as a whole. IFS was first introduced by a family therapist, Richard Schwartz. He described the patterns he noticed in his patients. What I heard repeatedly were descriptions of what they often called their parts, the conflicted sub-personalities that resided within them. He said about trying to understand these parts as well as how they related to one another. If the mind is a family, what does a happy family look like? The theory states that there are probably infinite aspects within each person, but they tend to fall into three main groups. The firefighter. These are protectors who step in to help when triggered, i.e. put out the fire in whatever way possible healthy and sustainable or not. Manager manages emotions and situations via planning and control. Exile. The exile is basically what both the managers and firefighters are working to contain. The exile's job is to hold difficult feelings of shame, pain, or hurt from previous unresolved experiences these parts of us all have a purpose, even the bad parts. When you work with an IFS therapist, your goal is to find out what that purpose is. As an example, you may have experienced a trauma in your childhood that created feelings of anger and rage in you. These feelings are exiled when the manager steps in to suppress and contain them. Furthermore, when these feelings of rage and anger do break free, the firefighter is ready to step in and manage the emergency. This may be in the form of addictive behaviors that numb and distract, or projection onto someone else, so that you don't have to face the exile too closely. An IFS therapist will typically walk you through a six-part process, but you can replicate the same thing on your own. Step 1. Find as with so many of the techniques we'll discuss in this book, begin by becoming aware. Notice all sensations as well as how your body and mind are connected. Perhaps you notice a tightness in your stomach. Step 2. Focus. Instead of avoiding or fleeing these sensations, 
put your focus more intently on them. Notice this feeling of stomach tightness, for example, without letting your mind wander somewhere else. Step 3. Flesh out. Part 2. So, how did you get here? As you practice growing your self-awareness, as you engage your shadow and bring it into the light, and as you use various gestalt techniques to strengthen your conscious living in the moment, you may start to encounter something ironic. You may discover that increasing awareness in the present tends to show you just how much is unresolved and unacknowledged in the past. In part two, we expand our awareness to take a broader view of our context, our history, and all those early life experiences that shape the people we are today. Again, the goal is not to dwell or to passively bemoan everything that went wrong. Rather, we're looking to understand with the purpose to rewrite, release, or even challenge those early experiences. Let's begin by considering one of the biggest influences on the way we think, the earliest bond we developed with our primary caregivers. Chapter 5. What is your attachment style? What you'll learn in this chapter? How your attachment style influences everything in your life, how to identify it, and how to work around it as a conscious, proactive adult in the present. It's not a surprise that our environment and the formative relationships of our childhood years play a big part in who we are as adults. Yes, it is our responsibility to face ourselves as we are, warts and all, in the present. But you've also probably wondered more than once, where did all of this come from? Before we embark on questions of early childhood attachment and the inner child, we should note one important caveat. We need to understand our childhoods not so we can blame others, get trapped in pessimism, or dwell in perpetual victimhood. We seek to understand so that we can reclaim conscious, responsible control over ourselves in the present. British psychologist John Bowlby was the first to pioneer the theory of attachment styles. For him, the attachment bond is the emotional connection you develop with a primary caregiver, usually your mother. The nature of this bond serves as an early template or model influencing all other relationships you have in your life. It becomes the single biggest influence for how you handle intimacy as an adult, and it's on a physiological level too, since the infant's developing brain will literally take shape to adapt to the environment it finds itself in. People's attachment styles vary according to what they've learned in those early relationships to caregivers. The idea is that if you had a stable, caring, and responsive bond with your caregiver, you developed a secure attachment style. When a caregiver responds to a helpless child's nonverbal cues for their needs to be met, those children grow up to be confident, self-aware, trusting, and able to form good relationships with others. Other characteristics and behaviors resulting from secure attachment include empathy skills, good boundaries, high self-worth, more satisfying relationships, good communication skills, the ability to express needs honestly, trust, ability to be alone but valuing connection, mature, able to manage conflict, and bounce back from disappointments. You don't need perfect care 100% of the time to have formed a secure attachment. Similarly, just because you are securely attached doesn't mean you never experience relationship difficulties. Without consistently responsive caregiving, however, you would develop an insecure attachment style. This is characterized by difficult... Chapter 6. How to Reparent Your Inner Child What you'll learn in this chapter what your inner child is, how it affects your life as an adult, and six ways you can begin meeting needs that originally went unmet in your childhood. The theory of the inner child, originally introduced by psychotherapist Carl Jung, rests on the idea that right now we are all every age we have ever been. As we grow, we add more layers onto our psyches, but at the very core is still the little child we once were. The inner child was once vulnerable and impressionable, and during its earliest experiences with caregivers, 
its emotions and core beliefs were put in place. Depending on our earliest childhood experiences, that inner child may be feeling alone, afraid, hurt, or confused. Resolving and healing this pain is what inner child work is all about. By going back to reparent ourselves, we put to rest unresolved issues from the past and free ourselves to engage with the present in a more whole, happy, and healthy way. What do you think your inner child would say to you if it could speak? Would it cry or throw a tantrum? Play and be carefree? Ask for reassurance? You may never have considered actively engaging this emotional, unconscious part of yourself, but doing so may be one of the most powerful forms of self-therapy you'll ever try. That's because when your inner child is happy and well, you're able to move on in life with more energy, creativity, authenticity, and contentment. Though your childhood is over, its effects can live on in the present in the form of learned behavior and attitudes. For example, if we learned in early childhood that the world was an unsafe place and that it was useless to ask others to meet our needs, we may grow up to be quite pessimistic and independent, never quite trusting others. We may see this childhood pain reflected in all our adulthood relationships, that is, until we can go back to that inner child and resolve the issue ourselves. The idea is that ignoring or repressing this pain won't make it go away. It's only by acknowledging, accepting, and healing it that we move on. If you're wondering whether this kind of work is difficult, scary, or time-consuming, well, it can be. It's also usually something that's done with the help of a trained therapist. However, you may be surprised at just how intuitive these exercises are and how much you enjoy them once you try them for yourself. Reparenting In the 70s, Dr. Lucia Capicchioni used art therapy to help her clients access and heal their inner children. The goal is to reclaim and reconnect with parts of yourself that have been neglected, much like the process for shadow work described above. The principles are simple because they're not all that different from the way we parent children normally by making sure they feel loved, safe, valued, and seen. When, how, and how often you do the following techniques and exercises is up to you. Try them when you're feeling emotional, overwhelmed, or confused. At times like these, there's a good chance your wounded inner child has been activated, so it's an opportunity to step in and engage with them directly. Alternatively, try them daily, either in the morning or evening as part of your everyday routines, or incorporate them into other techniques like journaling and visualization. Reparenting Yourself Chapter 7. Rewrite the Story of Your Life What you'll learn in this chapter? That you are the author of your own life, and that it's never too late to rewrite the story. When you practice self-therapy, and reparent your inner child, you're doing something special, rewriting your life script. I'm so shy. I could never do something like that. I was a wild child. I'm pretty unlucky. I'm not a math person. Women always leave me, eventually. Every time you repeat statements like the ones above, you reveal the unconscious narrative you've taken on for your life. A self-narrative is exactly like a movie script, telling us the role we play and what kind of story we're living. The thing is, although the script may feel like it's written in stone, it isn't. It was put there by our life experiences and can absolutely be changed. But first, we need to be aware of the fact that we are playing out that script in the first place. Our self-perception can become so automatic and ingrained that we don't see it anymore and simply assume it's fact. We may have been given a narrative as children when we were too young to really understand it, either by our caregivers or society at large, and then internalized that perception and took it on as our own. In your narrative, you may be the villain, the hero, or the victim. This narrative shapes everything in your life how you engage with others, how you feel about yourself, 
your identity and sense of purpose, your choices and how you interpret events, everything. So if you can change the narrative, everything else changes too. Your entire life can be transformed if you can transform the story that your life runs on. This is where narrative therapy can help. Devised by therapist Michael White, narrative therapy is a way of consciously reclaiming your life's meaning. Instead of living inside the script, you step outside of it and look at it objectively. Narrative therapy tells us we're all unique and our experience and perception matters. We are enough as we are. We don't need to blame or point fingers. The idea is to understand and take ownership of stories, not condemn them. We are not our thoughts, and we can externalize our problems. Our stories can change. We are each the experts on our own lives, and we are the authors. There are many useful narrative therapy techniques out there, but one exercise is especially suited for those wanting to practice self-therapy. The My Life Story exercise is based on the principles of narrative therapy and encourages a holistic perspective on your past and present. The goal is to create an outline of your life that doesn't revolve around negative memories and pain as much as moments of intensity or growth. By doing so, you cultivate a broader, richer perspective of your life. When we internalize a narrative, we tend to pay more attention to evidence that confirms our beliefs, thus forming a self-fulfilling prophecy. We also tend to exaggerate the negative while overlooking the positive. The My Life Story exercise works to counterbalance this tendency. My Life Story Exercise Step 1 Begin with a title, and maybe a subtitle, something that... Chapter 8. Identify and change your core beliefs. What you'll learn in this chapter, what your core beliefs are, where they come from, and what you can do to gently challenge them. The underlying assumptions we have about ourselves, others, and the world in general are known as core beliefs. They are core in that they're so deeply ingrained they may feel like a part of us, like our own name. In the previous chapters, we've already encountered some examples of these, as well as seen how they can stem from early childhood experiences. Core beliefs emerge in childhood when we learn to interpret the world around us based on our connections with caregivers and our personal experiences. While these mental shortcuts can be beneficial in many circumstances, they can become ingrained patterns of thought, feeling, and behavior that are ultimately self-sabotaging. If you've ever felt caught in a habit that you can't seem to break or stuck with a behavior you'd like to change, such as addiction or poor communication, you've probably had a core belief working behind the scenes. For example, in your self-therapy journey, you might have gradually come to recognize a pattern of undervaluing yourself. Digging into it, you see a core belief at the center of it all. I am not as worthy as other people. Once you identify this core belief, you see how it manifests itself everywhere, in negative self-talk, in choices that keep you playing small and avoiding risk or exposure, and in relationships with people who seem to unconsciously agree that you're not worth much. Identifying your core beliefs and assumptions is critical because it allows you to establish the connection between your beliefs and how you're feeling in each passing moment. This insight allows you to take a step back and consider the problem from a different perspective. You get to ask yourself, wait, is this how I want to approach this moment? Do I want to keep playing out this tired old loop, or do I want to choose something different? A big part of cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, is learning how to identify and challenge your core beliefs so that limiting perceptions can be reshaped and you can live the life you want to live experience more happiness, and fulfill your potential. A core belief is like an internalized rule that guides the creation of your personal narrative. We behave in ways to confirm these rules, i.e., if we encounter something that affirms it, 
we cling to that and focus on it, whereas if we encounter something that disproves our belief, we dismiss it. The more we affirm a belief, the more entrenched it gets, which is why it can take time and effort to challenge. Ultimately, we interpret everything through the lens of this belief. If we believe, for example, that we are unworthy as people, when someone smiles at us on the street, we may think, I wonder why they're laughing at me. Or perhaps we don't even notice their smile in the first place. Core beliefs can vary in both their accuracy and their usefulness. Our goal in self-therapy is to transform our unconscious, maladaptive, and inaccurate core beliefs into alternatives that genuinely support our well-being and growth as people. We can't do this, however, if we're unaware or unwilling to gently challenge what we know. We need to constantly remind ourselves that core beliefs are not facts. They're just thoughts and ideas that we've repeated so often that we believe them to be true. Core beliefs can create negative automatic thought patterns. Chapter 9, The ABCD Model. What you'll learn in this chapter? How to use the ABCD model to identify and re-engineer your ingrained thought patterns and cognitive distortions. Albert Ellis, one of CBT's pioneers, devised the popular ABCD model, which is a class of cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT technique, and one we can make use of in self-therapy. When used correctly, Ellis's approach can help us address a wide range of emotional issues, including anger, depression, or anxiety. In ABCD, A stands for activating event, the trigger. B stands for belief system, how you interpret your trigger, whether a core belief is at play or not. C stands for consequences, the emotional and behavioral consequences that result. D stands for dispute, where we examine, challenge, or reframe our underlying core beliefs, assumptions, and expectations. The ABCD framework is a great way to structure your efforts to identify and change cognitive distortions and, in so doing, change your entire life. While the techniques described in the previous sections are good for uncovering deep and lasting core beliefs, the ABCD technique is more suited for everyday thoughts and self-talk. While it's always good to understand the deeper emotional and psychological roots of your self-concept, you can also make strides by dealing with cognitive distortions purely on the cognitive level. In fact, many people think of CBT this way, with your brain being a kind of computer and your thoughts being the programming that results in certain emotional and behavioral outputs. Change the program, change the outputs. Our minds work so fast that our responses can seem automatic at times. The ABCD model helps us slow things down and take control. We can run through the acronym in the heat of the moment or do a kind of thought post-mortem after the fact when we're trying to understand why things happened the way they did. At first, reflecting on events that have already passed may be easier, but with practice, you should be able to start noticing certain thought patterns as they occur. To begin using the ABCD model, simply run through each of the four letters of the acronym in turn. The magic happens at D, dispute, where you give yourself the chance to act and choose a different way forward for yourself. Many people find the process very calming and grounding, and it can certainly help you dial back strong emotions and see a more sensible, clearer, and simpler way forward. Here's how. Get a journal or pen and paper and start making notes. If you're doing this process in the moment, you'll obviously frame this process in the present tense and do it somewhat quicker without writing anything down. Step one, start with the activating event. What happened? What is the event, thought, feeling, gesture, situation, or dynamic that triggered the present situation? Bear in mind that a trigger can be anything from external events to internal sensations, such as the smell of the tobacco your grandfather used to smoke, being in the car, having to be appraised and graded by superiors, 
seeing a particular kind of violence in a movie, the memory of something that happened in school 30 years ago, feeling sick or unwell. Step 2. Identify your... Chapter 10. The Triple Column Technique. What you'll learn in this chapter? A simple but useful technique for homing in on your cognitive distortions, the filters you place over objective reality. What you tell your mind to believe, it believes. That means, if you fill your mind with negative self-talk all day, every day, your life will be shaped by that negativity. So many of us think that our inner self-talk is just a neutral narrator casually perceiving events. But really, our inner talk shapes our perception, and then our perception works to confirm what we've already decided we believe. The goal is to become aware of our self-talk and be more discerning about the effect it's having on our perception and, therefore, our lives. We don't have to take our self-talk's word for it. Instead, we can check to see whether it's distorted and ask the more conscious, healthier, and more realistic part of us to talk back to that negative self-talk and correct those distortions. This is what the triple column technique can help you do. Using this technique, you can zoom in on cognitive distortions so you can moderate them. Here's a step-by-step process. Step 1. Create your table. On a piece of paper, draw two lines to make three columns, each labeled 1. Automatic thoughts. 2. Cognitive distortion. 3. Rational response. Step 2. Write down your self-critical thoughts. In the first far-left column, begin by writing down the negative self-talk you've become aware of. This will be a mix of core beliefs, emotions, expectations, assumptions, biases, guesses, judgments, interpretations, and reactions. For example, this is a complete, total disaster. This always happens. I'm to blame. I bet he's angry with me. I was supposed to do better. Step 3. Identify Cognitive Distortions Some of your thoughts may be positive, hopeful, inspiring, kind, and rational, but if you're reading this book, chances are your self-talk tends to be more critical and negative. In the middle column, for each of the thoughts you noted in Step 2, identify any cognitive distortions that apply. More on this in just a moment. Step four, explore rational alternatives. In the final column, try to find more accurate, useful, and positive alternatives for each thought. Now, it's important that this alternative thought is still realistic. You don't need to tell yourself comforting lies or unbelievable platitudes. You don't need to cheer yourself up or pretend that things are better than they are. So, for example... A good alternative for I'm fat and out of shape and completely unattractive could be I have many positive attributes and if I'm unhappy with my health or appearance, I can always make positive changes. The alternative you're the most attractive person to ever live is just as distorted. Plus, you're unlikely to believe it anyway. Once you've identified these alternatives, the hard part begins you need to consistently remind yourself to counter every negative bit of self-talk with a more positive rebuttal. Again, it takes time and practice. In the beginning, you may be quite surprised just how much negative self-talk you engage in. Chapter 11, Cognitive Diffusion. What you'll learn in this chapter? Three techniques to quickly gain distance, control, and perspective when you feel overwhelmed by thoughts and feelings. Identifying core beliefs and using the ABCD model and triple column technique can all feel pretty exhausting, especially if anxiety and overthinking are a problem for you. It may seem like all of these techniques and models only add to the stress of trying to manage and untangle your thoughts. Even though CBT is not about forcefully stopping certain thoughts, it can sometimes feel like you're playing whack-a-mole with intrusive, 
negative, or self-critical thoughts. If this is the case, and you often feel like your head is a big mess of knots and tangles, you might enjoy the approach suggested by ACT, or Action Commitment Therapy. The goal of ACT is not to change, fight, repress, or battle thoughts and feelings. Instead, we change how we relate to those thoughts and feelings. Big difference. To put it another way, the idea is that the content of our thoughts is never the problem. Rather, it's our attitude and response to that content that can create trouble for us. Person A may have the thought, nobody loves me, and respond to that thought by completely identifying with it. They focus on it fully, believe it, and allow it to drag them down a rabbit hole of similarly dark thoughts. Person B also has the thought, nobody loves me, but they're not identified, or what ACT calls fused, with this thought. They don't take this thought as 100% absolute truth. Person A is experiencing being unloved. Person B is experiencing the thought that they are unloved. Person A is fused with their experience, feeling it as absolute reality, whereas person B understands that they are, in fact, just having an experience, and that reality and thoughts about reality are not necessarily the same thing. Person B is practicing cognitive diffusion and detaching themselves from their experience rather than identifying with it. No, they're not emotionless robots. The thought, feeling, and experience is still there. The only difference is that they're not lost and drowning in it. They look at thoughts from the outside rather than at the world from inside their thoughts. They are aware and can notice what's happening to them. Sometimes, when we battle our thoughts, we only end up creating more of the same problem. Importantly, being fused this way can entail both clinging to an experience or desperately avoiding and denying it. Either way, we're still being pushed around by the thought. It is our response to the thought that's creating problems, not the thought. So, unless we change our response, we stay tangled. The ACT diffusion techniques we'll look at below all work because they achieve the following. Increase psychological distance from strong experiences, reducing negativity. Remind us that our thoughts are not the same as reality. Remind us that we are not slaves to the influence of our thoughts. Help us stay flexible, open-minded, and creative. Keep us in the present moment when we can respond to our experiences spontaneously. Stay connected to our power to choose what we do and how. Part 4. Build the life you want, one action at a time. Chapter 12. Systematic Desensitization. What you'll learn in this chapter? How to systematically face your fears and break old, limiting associations so you can build new ones. In Parts 1, 2, and 3, you delve deep into your own psyche, carefully considered your core beliefs, integrated your early childhood experiences, engaged your shadow, and reconsidered your personal life narrative. This kind of work is invaluable, no doubt. However, it's incomplete unless it's combined with deliberate action in the world. Much self-help advice out there takes the reverse approach and starts with goals, actions, and behaviors with the hope that it will inspire positive internal changes. However, you're more likely to succeed if you work from the inside out and allow your actions and behaviors to emerge from a strong, healthy sense of self. Systematic desensitization is an evidence-based therapy that combines relaxation techniques with gradual exposure to help you overcome a phobia such as a fear of flying, heights, or public speaking. However, the principles and techniques are useful even if you don't have a specific phobia you'd like to challenge. The power of systematic desensitization is that it allows your inner world to interface with the outer world. It creates an arena where you can literally test out your core beliefs, assumptions, biases, and expectations. This real-world practice can be far more powerful 
than merely talking or thinking about the changes you'd like to make in your life. Here's how it's practiced. You work your way up through increasing levels of emotional intensity, which explains the other term this technique is known by, progressive exposure therapy. You start with the least intense and consciously and deliberately dial up the intensity. There are three key processes involved for the process to work. One, a hierarchy of intensity. In the classic case, the emotion in question is fear or panic. Two, slow and incremental or graded exposure. Three, relaxation techniques used to desensitize you to progressive levels of exposure. The overall goal of this technique rests on classical conditioning. You create new associations between relaxation and what is normally threatening or frightening. Over time, a stimulus or situation will stop producing the same negative reaction in you as you gradually teach yourself a new way of responding. There are a few different ways to practice systematic desensitization, but here's a simplified approach you can follow on your own. Step 1. Choose your favorite relaxation technique. You need to find a way to induce feelings of calmness and control in yourself. There are many ways to do this. Visualization. For example, closing the eyes and imagining in vivid detail a beautiful, serene place that makes you feel calm, such as a garden or peaceful beach. Deep breathing. Slow and regulate your breathing so that your heart rate drops and your nervous system is calmed down and regulated. Take a few deep, slow belly breaths and deliberately imagine yourself relaxing, both physically and mentally. Progressive Muscle Relaxation Your muscles can access deeper states of relaxation if they tense up first. Lie down somewhere, and moving through the different parts of your body, tense. Chapter 13, Behavioral Activation What you'll learn in this chapter? Why staying active and engaged in life is so important and how to create a life that best reflects your deepest values. The premise of behavioral activation is pretty simple. When you're depressed, you're less active. That means you're not out there in the world encountering new, potentially rewarding experiences. Therefore, you end up more depressed. Without realizing it, you're stuck in a cycle of low mood and negative feelings. In this situation... Staying at home to dwell forever on reflection and self-therapy may be precisely the thing that's keeping you feeling bad. Instead, according to behavioral activation theory, you need to do something. With all this talk of inner children, shadows, and invisible core beliefs and narratives, you could be forgiven for forgetting that you have a body at all, but you do. And there's a close relationship with your mood and what you do with that body. While therapy is great, some of the best things you can do for yourself include the obvious. Spend time with loved ones, move your body, learn something new, or go on an adventure. By acting, you give yourself the chance to create three important things. One, pleasure. Two, mastery. Three, connection. Break the cycle of inactivity and depression by being proactive. Because you're breaking a cycle, though, and because there may be very little initial momentum, you have to take the first step even when you don't necessarily feel like it. It's a mistake to think that motivation is needed for action. Sometimes it's the other way around, and action inspires motivation. There are a few components to master when introducing behavioral activation into your life. Step 1. Monitor your activity. You need to first understand your activity levels and patterns, as well as how that affects your mood day to day. To do this, keep a record that tracks what you're doing for literally every hour of your waking life. You might think you already know how you spend your time, but prepare to be surprised. Sometimes, visually seeing your schedule on one page can give you a more accurate and unexpected sense of what you're actually doing with your time i.e. your life. You can easily create a chart for yourself in Microsoft Excel or 
simply drop your own table by hand, leaving enough space to jot down a word or two, such as watching TV or working. You might also like to present the data in different ways and list how many hours go to each activity. A pie graph can be insightful. One important thing to do, simultaneously track your mood. For example, you could use a 10-point scale or simply assign a word to each day, like calm or grumpy. Step 2. Analyze your activity. Once you've gathered such data for around a week, more is better, it's time to look at the bigger picture and ask yourself, are there any patterns between my activity levels and my mood? Some more questions to guide your analysis. Which activities are associated with the best mood, and vice versa? Is there a connection between activity level or intensity and mood? How did you feel on days when you didn't leave the house or talk to another person? Depending on your answers, you can now compile a list of activities that you know create good feelings. Chapter 14, Behavioral Experiments. What you'll learn in this chapter? How to test out your beliefs and assumptions and design experiments to help you identify healthier, more rational alternatives instead. Our final chapter is all about challenging our misconceptions, biases, and assumptions in the best way possible, empirically. Behavioral experiments are a way to deliberately examine our beliefs and preconceived ideas and is a big part of self-directed CBT. In a previous section, we looked at cognitive distortions and how to argue against them. We also closely examined our core beliefs and our personal narratives and how we might challenge these so they can be rewritten. However, the mind is extremely powerful, and many people are masters at fooling themselves, clinging to irrational beliefs, despite lacking any shred of evidence. Behavioral experiments are a great way to get around our own cognitive illusions and see things the way they really are. An experiment is set up in such a way that we can trust our conclusions to be accurate. Knowing that your beliefs are logical, reasonable, and sound, instead of based on superstition, habit, fear, or assumption, is incredibly liberating. Conducting a behavioral experiment is not difficult, but it does take some honesty. We have to be willing to drop our filters and be open-minded enough to adjust our perceptions when faced with evidence. We all have mental models that encourage us to focus on what fits our narrative, dismiss what doesn't, and distort everything else so that our prevailing belief is preserved. But we also have the power to challenge those models. A classic example is imposter syndrome. This is where a person holds a belief in their own unworthiness, and that filter colors everything they perceive. They're unable to acknowledge any praise, awards, or promotions as valid, and instead interpret them in the context of their unworthiness. Any achievement must be a mistake, and they'll be found out as frauds any day now. When we conduct behavioral experiments, though, we put our beliefs to the test, committing to holding only those views that have a basis in reality. How to Test Your Own Cognitive Hypothesis A hypothesis is a guess or prediction about what will happen in the future or a tentative explanation. It's not unlike the mind-reading or fortune-telling cognitive distortion, though, because often these hypotheses have very shaky foundations indeed. Using the scientific method, we pose a hypothesis and then test it. We devise an experiment, gather data, interpret that data, and then check to see if the result allows us to reject our hypothesis or not. There is an infinite number of ways to conduct experiments, but they all follow this basic pattern of hypothesis testing. The next time that hypothesis pops into your head, you can argue against it very effectively because you've already proven to yourself that it isn't true. 
what matters is that we approach our hypothesis as scientists do, with curiosity, neutrality, and a genuine desire to understand the phenomenon at hand. That means no shame. Thanks for joining us again this week on Voice Over Work, an audiobook sampler. Remember to take a moment and check out Nick Trenton's website at bit.ly slash Nick Trenton. See you Saturday for the next audiobook preview. Have a great week.